Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the second episode of the podcast. Thank you for coming back. My name is Ali, and I invite you all to sit and suck for a while. Today, we'll be talking about how anxiety develops, how it can be dealt with in unhealthy ways, and how to deal with it in a healthy way. Uh, if you ever have any topics or questions you have that you want us to answer on the, the show, you can contact me directly via email. You can check out our Facebook or Twitter as well. Uh, today we have with us a colleague and a dear friend, Michael Hobart. Mike, please introduce yourself. Uh, well, thank you for having me, Ali. Uh, my name is Michael Hobart. Generally, I go by Mike. But um, yeah, I'm a recent graduate um, from a Master's of Clinical Psychology program, and I'm a licensed professional counselor. So I'm a, a working therapist in the field, and uh, I'm glad to be here today to talk about this topic, um, anxiety, because um, something we run into with most of our clients to one degree or another. And it's also something I have personal experience with, so I'm, I'm looking forward to chatting about this uh, very important topic. We appreciate you being with us today. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you enjoy the show. Ladies and gentlemen, in the past we talked a bit about anxiety and what that looks like and how it affects uh, certain people differently and uh, at different stages of life. Now, today we'll be talking a bit more about uh, the differences between social and generalized anxiety. And while they may share some similarities and symptoms, there are also some differences as well. Mike, can you tell us a little bit more about it? Sure. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's pretty, um, on the face of it, it's kind of what you would expect. Um, generalized anxiety cuts across many different contexts. It could be anxiety not only in social situations, but other situations. Anxiety when you're alone at home. Anxiety when you're in your car, driving to school, any part of your life. Where social anxiety uh, tends to have that focus of more of it more being related to social settings, social situations in which one's anxiety uh, is increased or triggered through, the, through those kinds of settings or situations. So some examples of someone that is struggling with social anxiety, uh, the context would be a bit different than someone who is struggling with just generalized anxiety. For example, maybe going to a social setting where you're meeting new people or you're going somewhere you haven't been before. And I guess the process of uh, thinking will be a bit different going into those situations, correct? Sure, sure. And, um, you know, one thing to watch, too, with social anxiety is the, the avoidance part, the way that it has an Absolutely. effect on, on an individual's ability to get out and interact and socialize with other people. So that's one of the main things we're looking for when we're trying to uh, differentiate between the two. Okay. So what are some things that we can see for someone who is struggling with social anxiety? I assume just, you know, the avoidance part of it will be huge, as well as um, the general anxiety symptoms that you experience when you're alone, but just in social situations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd say that's fair. I mean, 
you know, most people with anxiety, there's there's multiple components to the symptoms they experience. There's the physical symptoms. Um, that could be, you know, a sense of your heart racing or pressure in your chest, labored breathing, pain, sweating, tension in your body, various uh, sickness in your stomach, many different kinds of, of physical anxiety symptoms. But then there's also the, the mental, psychological, uh, emotional component. So somebody with generalized anxiety, you know, there could be many different things that provoke those symptoms. And someone with social anxiety, you, say, you tend to see more that self-explanatory social aspect of it. But that's where their triggers lie. And then if you can imagine the physical symptoms I mentioned, but the psychological component, what's going on in their head is this fear of rejection, fear of not fitting in, fear that they're going to embarrass themselves, do something inappropriate, and, and just generally this feeling of, of, of psychological discomfort that oftentimes is, is mirrored by the physical symptoms. So, Mike, would it be possible for someone who is struggling with generalized anxiety to actually develop a social anxiety? Yeah, I would say that's fair because, you know, anxiety can lead to an overall increase in in self-consciousness. By that meaning, you're having this internal process where you're feeling these physical symptoms and then you're having these mental processes going on and it can kind of snowball into a situation where well, you know, why, why leave the house? Why put myself in situations where my anxiety might be increased or triggered? And it's kind of a natural uh, response. You can, you can empathize with that uh, in thinking, well, let me try to minimize the risk and minimize my suffering. The problem with that, though, as you know, is that it creates that snowball effect and can make one even more susceptible and um, to anxiety and uh, starts to lead to overall decrease in their uh, enjoyment of life. Thank you, Mike. So I guess we have to look at development of the anxiety, right? For children and adolescents versus adults, the development has different milestones, may have different uh, ways the symptoms are exhibited. And for children and adolescents, this is where typically anxiety develops, correct? Yeah, you know, it's interesting when we um, have new clients come in, um, every client we ask about their history, when do you feel like this started, Um, can you trace the roots of it, and I'd say for the vast majority of people that I've worked with who have anxiety problems, uh, they can trace it to somewhere in their childhood or adolescence is kind of when it started, so um, there's a lot of things that factor into that. Um, which I think, you know, we'll continue to talk about as this part of the discussion uh, unfolds. During that stage of life, you know, as the individual is growing up during their infancy into, uh, you know, their childhood and adolescence, that's when they're really developing what's called their assumptive world. You know, it's, it's what we use to make sense of things, you know, how we perceive people around us, how we perceive ourselves, how we perceive society. And that perception or that assumptive world gets associated with feelings and emotional states, and it affects our mood, our behavior, our thoughts, and how we process different situations. So for someone during that stage of life, whether uh, you know, in childhood or adolescent, what can we see in regards to their anxiety? Where can we see the anxiety affecting their life? Um, well, you know, for the... Um For the untrained eye or just the average parent, you could mistake some of these things as just 
personality characteristics. Um, and sometimes that's a part of it, but a lot of times the way you see anxiety manifested in children or adolescents is through kind of a hypervigilance about various aspects of their life. So take school, for example. They can be very concerned, very worried about school, even if they're a straight-A student. You know, that's um, kind of paramount in their mind as to, you know, um, what's, how they're evaluated, which kind of comes from a sense of, like, being judged. So as your sense of self develops, you're very vulnerable. We've all experienced it. You're curious what the person across from you thinks when they see you, your teachers, friends, and family. So that aspect of school performance, which ties in with uh, a need for perfectionism, order, safety, reassurance, all those things can be kind of indicators that um, a child or adolescent who isn't expressing it verbally or isn't able to uh, might be experiencing anxiety. So I would also assume there'd be, you know, a feeling of judgment, even when that individual is not being under the microscope or not being judged by someone else. So I guess that want or that need for reassurance or that validation is going to be really important, right? Just making sure that that person is doing what they're supposed to be doing or making sure that, you know, they're doing everything right and always needing that reassurance to make sure that they're doing the right thing that can develop into you know low self-esteem or a low sense of self-confidence as well yeah i mean you know most of us can relate to that you know um especially in the transition from childhood to adolescence and going through puberty Uh, most of us have some sort of struggles with self-esteem and self-confidence is kind of uh, part of the rites of passage of going from childhood to adolescence to adulthood and somebody with anxiety I think it'd be fair to say that it's kind of a heightened experience and one thing I guess I would throw in there too Ali talking about all this is that you know some of this kind of reminds me of our discussion here of the concept of attachment Mm -hmm. um, which is one of the popular theories in psychology developed by John Bowlby and others which really talks about how early in life we develop this sense of safety in the world, safety in our relationships, a stable sense of who we are that's validated by the close people to us in our lives. So this sense of anxiety can also, you know, it can it can have its roots as early as, you know, infancy. But in general, I think it just kind of echoes that importance of developmentally of in childhood, adolescence, developing a sense of safety in the world, a sense of yourself, and a sense that, that you're going to be able to manage life. So when when that gets a little askew or when there's challenges to that, that's where anxiety can kind of come in and fill that void. Absolutely. And kind of segueing into our next topic here is the development of anxiety during adulthood. Now, it can be where if anxiety isn't treated at a young age during the childhood or adolescent stage of life, it can go on to increase in severity during adulthood. And adulthood has different transitions and different responsibilities, whether it's uh, education or career or finance or or maintaining a family, all those things can develop uh, stressors in our life and that can develop anxiety and increase those symptoms that we talked about. Yeah, I'd say um, you can definitely sometimes, you can definitely trace 
uh, if you're having an adult client come in, experience anxiety, like I said earlier, usually you can tr uh, trace it to anxiety they experienced at a younger age. And it's kind of those developmental mi milestones that you mentioned, um, transitions in life, new responsibilities, new pressures that can kind of elicit those anxiety symptoms and, and increase them to the point where it really uh, presents a challenge to an individual's ability to, to function and have some sort of uh, enjoyment in their day-to-day -day life. Indubitably. Yeah. So uh, the next part we'll talk about is the development of cognitive distortions. And a cognitive distortion is basically a lens through which we view different situations, different events, and how we perceive them in our minds. So there are different cognitive distortions that we can watch out for and making sure that you're aware of these cognitive distortions. So the first one is magnification and minimization. And that basically means you're, you're perceiving things as more important or having a higher impact than they truly have or making things less important than they should be. So for example, in a situation where you did something positive for yourself, you may see that as unimportant or just discounted as something that isn't significant for you, as opposed to if something bad happens, you magnified that situation or that event and give it more importance than it truly has. Another example would be catastrophizing, with, which is seeing only the worst possible outcomes and thinking of all the different negative scenarios that can possibly happen and sometimes to an extreme degree. Mike, what are some other ones? I kind of see them all as variations of the same issue, which is there is a tendency in our brains get to extreme kind of thinking. It's black and white. That's another uh, black or white thinking is another common, common cognitive distortion. But it's this polarization that kind of sometimes happens with us psychologically. We're either we're a success or we're a failure. Um, things are hopeful or they're not hopeful. So, so kind of like the all or nothing yeah, mentality. Exactly. And that's another one of the commonly uh, referred to categories of cognitive distortions. There's also things like mind reading, which is where you try to interpret what's going on in other people's minds, uh, what their feelings, uh, opinions, thoughts are, but really with not having the evidence you know, overgeneralizing, you know, one thing goes wrong, that means everything's going wrong. You know, just like Ali said earlier, minimization and magnification. So a version of that of minimization is disqualifying the positive. So only recognizing the negative aspects, not holding on to the things that went well or the positive aspects. So something I, I tell my clients is, you know, you can't trust every message your brain sends you. You know, there are going to be times where you have thoughts that go through your head that are distorted, that aren't realistic interpretations of yourself, other people, reality. So it's important to know about these cognitive distortions because we all do them, but they can have a significant impact on things like anxiety and depression. So uh, one of the things that we try to help our clients with when we're doing uh, cognitive behavior type therapy is to recognize when they're having these cognitive distortions step back from that automatic thought, examine it to see if it's realistic and or helpful, and then kind of anchor yourself in a, a more balanced, less polarized, and, and more realistic interpretation of yourself that, you know what, then you went from maybe having no options or thinking that the situation's bleak or hopeless to, okay, maybe things will work out. 
maybe it will be okay, which, which then gives you an opportunity to have more choices and interact more freely with the world. Whereas if you're stuck in one of these kind of distortions, it kind of paints you into a corner both psychologically and in terms of how you interact with the world. And other versions of cognitive distortions can include uh, fortune telling, which kind of also goes into that, you know, catastrophizing cognitive distortion of just always predicting the future or, you know, expecting that things will turn out badly without any evidence or, you know, past experience or just basing it off past experience and then using another cognitive distortion of overgeneralization and just making that broad interpretation of this one event was bad, they're all going to be bad, right? Mm. And then also another cognitive distortion is magical thinking, where we perceive unrelated situations based on beliefs or other things that may not necessarily be tied together. Yeah, exactly. And in the anxious or depressed mind, uh, these things are usually you know, going off all the time like firecrackers. And um, so it's really important for us to, uh, to recognize that, teach our, our clients how to recognize that, and then um, you know, learn how to manage it, step away from it. So we go back to relating what cognitive distortions are and what, how they affect their, our life to our assumptive world, right? How we grew up, how we, you know, build that perception of the world around us, it feeds back into those cognitive distortions. Because if we are seeing things initially, you know, through that lens or through that paradigm, going forward, that's how we're going to process those different events and different experiences in our life. And those can prompt automatic thoughts for us during different situations. Which then lead to behaviors, which lead to, if you're looking at it in terms of, you know, some of the previous theorists, the activating um, event, behavior consequences. I mean, we can see this chain in, in our everyday life, right? It starts with a thought, which then allows us to take a certain action or behave in a certain way. And then we have certain consequences. So it, it creates a feedback loop. And that's one of the dangers of when somebody is suffering from anxiety and or depression is that, you know, it can start to, to affect their life because there is that kind of domino effect between how you behave, how somebody then behaves back towards you, and that cycle continuing. So, so that's another reason why this is so important to catch it at that thought stage before it turns into a behavior and then kind of perpetuates that cycle. Yeah. So if anxiety is left untreated, if it's allowed to increase in severity over the years, it can turn into different disorders. And the first one we'll talk about is the obsessive-compulsive disorder, where that fusion of that magical thinking and the anxiety can allow us to have beliefs that different behaviors we do or different thoughts we have are preventative measures to keeping us safe or keeping things from falling apart in our life. Yeah, you know, it's it's really it's kind of like a lot of a lot of the other things that we've talked about today. It it becomes a distortion of what is otherwise a healthy behavior. So, if you think about something like washing your hands, right? We all know that germs cause infection, disease. It makes sense to wash our hands when appropriate, but taken to its extreme. If you're trying to prevent illness, disease, and you're washing your hands, you know, 20, 30, 40 times a day to do so, 
that's where that obsessiveness becomes unhealthy. And sometimes that can be like an example there where it's a, a realistic principle taken to the extreme to an unrealistic, distorted extent or magical thinking. If I count these number of steps, if I do this, everything will be okay. So yeah, it's an attempt to deal with that loss, that sense of, of not having control, not being safe and trying to, to make the world more manageable uh, for an individual. But the problem it is, is that all those obsessions lead to impairment in one's life so and it's not good to be uh, on that mental hamster wheel of always being kind of uh, trying to keep in touch with these different compulsive behaviors even further when someone develops a social anxiety or a general anxiety and begins to isolate that you know has a severe effect on their um, social relationships their intimate relationships their family relationships additionally you know that Anxiety can cause an impaired functioning in different settings, whether it's in school or at work or at home, and that can also result in a you know a depressed state and develop into its own depression uh, down the road, where you know that low self-esteem that we talked about, that low sense of self or you know perception of the self, the low mood that you get from having. Um, bad days or experiencing impaired functioning at uh, at work or at school and on, on an everyday basis and going further is experiencing panic attacks and this can be one of the extreme byproducts of anxiety where an individual starts to experience severe symptoms that you know those physiological symptoms that we talked about earlier you know the racing of the heart the you know tightness of the chest the inability to catch your breath it's as if an elephant is sitting on your chest and a lot of people actually compare it to having a heart attack and experiencing that on a daily level or in different situations can severely affect your functioning on a daily basis and the next one would be uh, substance abuse which we'll actually talk about further in another episode more in detail but that need for an external substance, an external factor that allows you to, you know, be calm in social situations or allows you to cope with different situations in your life that cause you anxiety. And additionally, irrational fears and stress. Yeah, you know, that's if you can kind of add all this up, right, if you can kind of picture it in your mind, you know, a tendency to be more obsessive, compulsive, uh, isolating from people, from your losing you know, uh, touch in your relationships, the depression, panic, substance abuse. All those things are kind of, like I said earlier, are exaggerations of, of real things, right? So you're in this hypervigilant state, constantly trying to manage this physiological and psychological aspect of anxiety, and you're in a distorted, you know, kind of uh, paradigm. So the rational fears start to kind of fill that void. And that can limit you even more and more in your day-to-day life. And, and regular stressful events, let's say something like going to the grocery store or something, right? I mean, you know, some of us have a great time at the store. Some of us are just trying to rush through it and get home. But for somebody, you know, kind of in the midst of significant anxiety, it might seem as simple to, uh, to me or you as running an errand is, uh, you know, kind of like a, a monumental task that provokes uh, significant stress and distress. So 
So when you picture all those things, like uh, some elements might be present, some not, but that kind of swirl that's created by all those different things, it can kind of start to give you an appreciation for what uh, living with anxiety can be like. And we, we can see that there's a pattern where, you know, the panic, the substance abuse, the irrational fears, even the impaired functioning can develop into these perpetual cycles in our life where we start to actually have anxiety about experiencing anxiety, right? You're stressed out ahead of time, you know, thinking, am I going to have a panic attack or am I going to, you know, experiencing a lot of anxiety in this situation? Then you start to worry about it where you're actually having that anxiety about anxiety. So with all the different things that can develop from anxiety, all the different ways that it affects us, what are the different healthy ways to cope with it? What, how can we deal with anxiety? And the first step is just recognizing when anxiety occurs, where it occurs, how it occurs, you know, is it occurring due to someone or something? Just being able to recognize those triggers, you know, that stimulus that produces that anxiety in you. And then by knowing or becoming aware of those triggers, then we can start to learn different coping skills. And there are many different coping skills. There are, you know, ones that you can utilize in on the spot, and then there's ones that you'll have to take time to do. And the more coping skills you have, the more equipped you are to handle different situations. It's like going to fix a car. You don't go fix a car with just a screwdriver. You have to have a wide array of different tools in your toolbox that are appropriate for different tasks. So the first one we want to talk about is mindfulness. Yeah, you know, mindfulness is just kind of a catch-all term for uh, different practices you can use to help calm your mind, get in more in touch with your with your body, your physical existence, and to try to cope with some of those extremes that you experience in, in your mind with your thoughts and emotions. So most mindfulness practices engage you on some sort of meditative level that helps kind of try to bring a balance in between the mind and body and the extremes that you experience within both of those domains. So there's several different approaches. I don't know, Ali, if you want to kind of mention some of the the bigger ones that people find helpful. Absolutely. So kind of like Mike just talked about, just being able to ground yourself in that present moment, because a lot of anxiety can be towards something that's you know, on your mind in the future, something that's, you know, happen, you know, in the foreseeable future. But what's really important is to ground yourself or anchor yourself in that current present moment. So some exercises that you can do are just making sure that you're breathing, you know, slowing down your breathing helps you calm down. And some breathing techniques such as four square breathing, where you're Breathing in for three seconds, you're holding your breath for three seconds and letting it go or exhaling for three seconds. And then just repeating that process over a couple of times until you feel more relaxed or more calm. And that does two things. One, it distracts you for that moment. And the second thing, it's reversing that physiological symptom that we talked about when you're experiencing anxiety, like the shortness of breath, the racing heartbeat, and that calms you down. And the research shows, I mean, it has uh, measurable effects on your brain functioning. So the part of your brain that's usually activated, um, overactivated when you're experiencing anxiety, 
starts to have the activity turned down to a healthier level when you do these types of techniques. Absolutely. And it just makes you grounded in that present moment. Mm. You're focusing on your breathing. You're not focusing on anything else. And that anchors you to that moment that you're in. Additionally, you can do some guided meditation. And those can be as short as five minutes uh, that you can pull up a short guided meditation video on YouTube and just allow yourself to focus on that, be in that moment, go through the meditation and you know, allow yourself to calm down or allow yourself to relax a little bit. And one technique that's been helpful for decades is yoga. Making sure that you're following through with the exercises, it allows you to be present in the moment, focusing on your breathing, focusing on your movement, and that just has a purpose of calming you down during moments of high stress or when you're experiencing a lot of anxiety. Yeah, and then, you know, there's also, you know, another common one is progressive muscle relaxation. Um, that's just kind of a mindfulness practice or meditation practice that you can do on your own or you can have uh, do a guided version where you slowly scan through every part of your body. Let's say you start at your toes and notice what you're feeling there, whether it's uh, relaxation or, or tightness, pain, um, and then try to relax that part and slowly work your way up you know, to the, the top of your body. Um, so that, you know, that's one that, you know, for some of the people I've worked with or, or you, we have worked with together, Ali, they might be reluctant to, to try mindfulness techniques. They might see it as kind of, you know, some sort of new agey thing. But the vast majority of them, by doing a simple pro progressive muscle relaxation, do report that afterwards they do feel better. They do feel more relaxed, more connected to their body and uh, more balanced overall. So that's a good one to try. Because, yeah, it's very simple. You're just working your way up your body and trying to relax each part, and uh, you can kind of see the results immediately after. Absolutely. And as we get further into distress tolerance skills, you know, skills that you learn to help you cope with moments of high stress or when you're experiencing those uh, symptoms of anxiety are just doing things that you enjoy that can be distracting for you. So just simple activities. And then if you couple those activities with mindfulness, for example, if you enjoy going for walks, maybe you can do a mindfulness walk where you're just really aware of your surroundings, you're seeing things, you're observing different things in your environment and your surroundings as you go for that walk. You're listening to different sounds, you're you know, enjoying that walk. Uh, similarly, just you know, eating, mindfulness eating. Sometimes we eat things without really thinking about them or, you know, we are focused on something else and it actually takes away that enjoyment that we have for that food. So just making sure that you're being mindful when you're eating. So essentially doing anything that you enjoy doing, but just being mindful during that process is another way to deal with the anxiety, just being in the moment. And Another acronym that we typically use during uh, this test tolerance is uh, ABC, which stands for Accumulating Positive Experiences, Building Mastery, and Coping Ahead. So yeah, that comes from the, uh, the School of Dialectical Behavior Therapy, or DBT, which really focuses on kind of the concept of that, you know, life is distressing. We are going to experience uh, difficult things, painful things. 
things that we can't necessarily change the outcome of. So ABC is one of those tools that gets you to be in that active mindset of like, okay, what can I do? How can I tip the scales towards a more enjoyable life, a life more present and less obsessed over the future and the unknown? And, you know, sometimes those acronyms can just act as a way for people to be like, okay, ABC, let me step back and let me do something about this rather than just kind of continue to be be trapped in, in the swirl of, of what anxiety can, can feel like. And the C portion of the ABC is coping ahead, which means knowing ahead of time when you will experience that anxiety and plan ahead, know what to do in those moments. That way you don't have to improvise. You don't have to experience that uh, the anxiety at that moment. You have something prepared for yourself. Yeah, something you can do beforehand too to help you relax maybe something positive afterward to look forward to activity you know that's the thing i guess i would give i would ask people to take away from from this entire discussion is if you're experiencing things these kinds of symptoms and these issues really the only way to get back to a more balanced enjoyable life is is by trying to actively cope with it and and to balance out those challenges and those painful aspects Another way of dealing with the anxiety or those negative thoughts are to challenge them, utilizing positive reaffirmation, positive self-talk, because that negative thinking can send you into that spiral of anxiety, low self-esteem or low self-confidence that we talked about earlier that can cause you to feel anxious in certain situations. So positive self-talk and just positive reaffirmation, allowing yourself to See the positive in a different situation or in a certain situation can be very helpful. And recognizing when you are having those cognitive distortions. That's why that's such a helpful tool for, for almost anybody to, to learn is to catch yourself when you're having those automatic negative thoughts, those cognitive distortions that lead you down a certain path of behavior and consequences Learning to do that is so important, and that's why we, we talked about that earlier because, you know, that's kind of the, the first step in starting to try to not go down that kind of anxious spiral path. Practicing acceptance is a huge one. A lot of anxiety stems from the lack of control we may have in our life. We want to control certain parts of our life and make sure that they run in a certain way, but the lack of control or the changes in our life can cause us anxiety if we're not accepting or if we're not uh, expecting things to occur in life that we don't have control over. So making sure that you're aware of that, aware the things that you can control in life, you know, things that you have control over and the things that you don't have control over and allowing yourself to just, you know, sit with that. And it's difficult, but it's a big step in being able to deal with that unknown, that uncertainty that we struggle with sometimes. Yeah, and, and I would say, you know, there's a way of going about that where you can just approach it rationally, like we are going to have challenges in life. Life, part of life is painful, difficult. Uh, we experience loss. All those things are very real. So just learning that that's part of it and that to balance that out, there's all these other parts of life that can be really amazing and enjoyable. And so you can approach that from kind of a rationalist pros and cons kind of construct. But, you know, that's where a lot of people, too, find spirituality of different forms uh, helpful because it can kind of help 
contextualize you know the, the the difficulty the suffering into a meaningful framework and that would be something that I encourage with all my clients is you know it doesn't really matter what direction you come from in terms of having meaning in your life whether that's through a religion or a spiritual practice or things that activities uh, goals that you find meaningful that's something that helps balance out the painful part is that Okay, there's pain, but there's meaning here. There's purpose. There's a structure to it that I can not only survive in, but also, you know, thrive in. And additional things that you can do to help with anxiety are limiting your caffeine consumption, making sure that you're having uh, healthy sleeping habits or, you know, developing healthier sleeping habits, making sure that you're eating a well-balanced meal, and... Those things are really important because those things are minor, but they make such a huge impact on your physical health and your mental health. And just making sure that you take time to yourself. Self-care can be one of the most important things for us, but it also is one of the most neglected parts of our life sometimes because there are so many things that are happening in our life, the responsibilities we have or things that we have to do for work or your, you know, what could be school for you or you know, for the family that yeah, yeah. we sometimes forget to take time to ourselves and just make sure that we are okay. And it doesn't have to be a significant amount of time. It could be you know, a minute there or two minutes there and those things do add up. And self-care can be something that you enjoy doing, something that gives you that sense of satisfaction, that relaxation, and having that throughout your day can have a huge impact on your day. And just setting uh, small goals for yourself initially. Don't overwhelm yourself with things you have to do. You know, be realistic. Make sure that the goals you set for yourself are attainable. If you have something huge to do, make sure you're maybe breaking it up into smaller tasks because that's where anxiety occurs. You know, when we have a huge task to do, and that sense of overwhelming work. And when you break something down into smaller tasks, they seem uh, more achievable and less anxiety-inducing. And lastly, just being patient with yourself, being forgiving of yourself. Anxiety is something that, depending on how long it's been in your life, can take a while to work through. And just allowing yourself to understand, allowing yourself to know that this might take some time. And it's not going to be perfect right away. It's going to take some time to make sure that you're learning different ways to cope with them and getting yourself to where you want to be in life. Yeah, and I would say, you know, you know, anxiety is something, like we said earlier, we all experience it, right? So what we're talking about here is a spectrum from normal, everyday anxiety that, that everyone experiences to at the other end, extreme anxiety, which kind of keeps you from living your life and, and enjoying yourself and, um, and having a, you know, as, as meaningful of a life as you'd like to have. So, you know, realizing, you know, where you're at and where you have to go. You know, some people who develop anxiety early in, in their life, there's, they have a genetic predisposition that got triggered by some sort of events or uh, circumstances in their life that were beyond, beyond their control. So really, like, I, I try to encourage my clients progress, right? Like, let's avoid that black and white thinking, all or nothing. Let's take progress and instead, and which, you know, there's that phrase that uh, perfection can be the enemy of progress, right? So I try to stress that and that, yeah, you know, depending on how severe it is or how complex, it could take a while, right? But if you're active, if you're mindful, 
if you're in the game and realizing, okay, this is my problem and the only way it's going to get better is by me doing something about it, well, it will get better. It can get better. But, you know, just being patient with yourself, right? Big changes rarely happen overnight. So having that long view and, and staying in the game and, and being active, and uh, it can get better. I've, I've experienced it in my own life, and, and we've seen it with our clients. So, and that's why we're, we felt it was important to share all this with you guys. Mike, thank you so much for being on the show with us today. We do appreciate your presence and insight you've provided everyone. Cool. Yeah, thank you, Ali. Um, I'm super glad to be here. And this is one of the cool things about doing what we do, right, is to spread the word, try to educate Absolutely. people, because the more you understand about issues like this, the easier it is to deal with them. You know, And that's why some of you in adulthood who've had this since childhood, you know, if you maybe if you understood better what you were going through, you would have those tools and that uh, that kind of framework for understanding it. So this is this is what's great about uh, what we do is just trying to educate people and, and help them take steps to improve their lives. So I'm grateful to be here. Thank you again, Mike. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we come to the end of the second episode. Thank you for stopping by and thank you for listening. My goal is to keep releasing these episodes every two to three weeks and to have more episodes with guests. Those will be longer episodes. In the next episode, we'll be talking about substance abuse and addiction. And as always, if you have any topics you would like to hear about, you can reach me via email or reach out to us on social media. And also make sure that you're following to get the latest updates and news. I'll see you next time. Thank you.